let's call up Nick Ridfin. See if that works. God, I hope it works. That's promising. Hello? Oh, Nick's there. Hey, Greg. Hello. Here, let me put some more uh, bass on your voice so you sound uh, like a macho writer. <laughs> well, see, we're not going to match the um, incredible show where you uh, basically uh, clucked like a chicken uh, at various times throughout the show. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> that's what happens when you're uh, doing shit. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, good shit? CIA shit? <laughs> <laughs> CIA stash. Uh, let's see. Okay, our listeners are climbing up into the the uh, almost the double digits right now. So let's do well, it. Well. <laughs> but I know you always do good on downloads. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I apparently uh, kill radio. I went to a meeting and they said, um, "Can you hear me? Okay, I guess you can." Uh, during one of the meetings, they said uh, apparently uh, Roddy Mysterioso was the most popular show on Kill Radio <laughs> by cool. by live listeners. But that's you know the, I think the average live listeners on Kill Radio for each show are like five. So <laughs> and that's what mine used to be. And then over the years, it's it's uh, built up. Um, let's see. Let, let's let's play the uh, brand the the newer intro with all the um, anti ETH stuff in it. There it is. No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We we need to go f through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit a domain that's also pure information. Are we uh, well conditioned here? Yes. such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about... Radio Mysterioso. 
Okay, one of the listeners said I was coming in way too loud, so I'll, I will turn myself down there. And uh, Nick, you still there? Yeah, you got your amps on eleven. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, one of the <laughs> one of the listeners came on the website and said, "Greg, you're too loud in uh, ex- in uh, 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 all in caps." <laughs> 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 I, I hope it's better now. I've I've tried to uh, get the level down. Uh, so anyway, uh, Nick's been on the show uh, probably countless times. I don't know how many times, uh, Nick. Probably ten, twelve. I I have no idea. Well, you're correct. It was actually countless. Yeah, countless. So we're not going to count. Uh, no, let's not count. So uh, everybody turned around, and Nick came out with a new book. So or I did anyway. Okay. <laughs> um uh the new one oh wait let me get it it's women in black what's a, the the mysterious the, what the creepy companions of the mib is that what it is let me grab the book yeah almost you're almost correct be close enough though ah the creepy companions of the mysterious mib there we go and that came out what like about a week ago well, um, it's like a lot of situations on Amazon is that the official release date was um, July the 1st, but copies started to circulate about a week or two before that, and there were a couple of days when they were available, and then Amazon said it wasn't available. But, uh, but yeah, July the 1st was the, was the actual public, publication date. Yeah. Uh, how, long, how long were you working on this? Did they, is, was this one of the ones that you couldn't uh, – what was it? You you had missed something because you had like two book uh, due dates within like a week of each other. Was this one of the books? Yeah, it was actually. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, it was just you know a situation where it's like a lot of books when you sort of um, if you're writing a story and it's different material in each chapter. You know, you I'm sort of dependent on in terms of how long it took to write. You know, it was dependent on as the stories came in. You know what I mean? It wasn't like some books where I've got all the material beforehand and I can just sort of write it fairly quickly. With this one, it was, you know, I can get 20,000 words done or whatever, but then until the other stories come in, you know, it could just be in limbo for four months or whatever. Who knows? Right. Um, I did not know of this uh, phenomenon. I mean, yeah, of course you hear stories, but it's not, I've never seen them collected in one place. Um and I think a lot well, of people, a lot of people listening, have that same feeling. So, uh, how did you suddenly decide? Oh, wait, was it the publisher saying, or was it one of your suggestions? I'm sure it was you. Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, for the most part of all the books I've done, I would say a good. Well, there's, I've done 36 altogether. Of those 36, I think about 29, the ideas were my ideas, and then the other five or six is where the publisher said, "Hey." would you be interested in doing this? And sometimes I said, yeah. And sometimes I was like, God, no. <laughs> um, and, but with this one, I think it's probably like, you know, depending on the subjects you write about, people contact you with their stories. You know, in other words, I've never written any books on ghosts or haunted houses. So no one has ever contacted me to say, you know, can you investigate this? Or can you give me some answers to what I saw in this haunted house? You know, I, I don't, they're not my areas of, research i guess kind of like if somebody wrote a book on area 51 they might get 15 emails from some a bunch of old guys who used to work at area 51 and with me having sort of prior to the women in black book i've done three men in black books 
people contact me, you know, and I get a lot of Men in Black reports over the years. But what happened was that between when the first Men in Black book I did, called On the Trail of the Saucer Spies for Patrick Weege's Anomalous Books in 2006, between then and about, well, actually right up to 2015, and I've got some reports now for 2016, but between those years, I got probably... 15 or 20 women in black stories, you know, for sort of every, I don't know what the figure was, but, you know, I could say for every 20 men in black stories I got, one would be a women in black story or there would be a man and a woman in black turn up. So I put all these kind of to one side um, because they were sort of a little bit out of the, the box, so to speak. And But over time I realised, well, now you've got five, then you've got ten, then you've got twenty. And then I got sort of um, quite a few reports um, from 2013 onwards when I, I wrote a couple of articles about the men in black, the women in black mystery. That brought more in. So then I thought, well, you know, there's enough material here to turn into a book. And more importantly, you know, from the perspective of the reader and the author as well, most of it was previously unseen material. You know, that's, I think, an important factor when you're writing a book you want to be able to give the the readership stuff they haven't seen before. You don't want to just go over old ground. Um, so that was really how it came together, writing about the subject and then people contacting me and then, you know, me adding a little bit here one month and then as another story comes in, add that the next month and, and, until it sort of took shape. So it really, probably the writing process was about, four years but not because it took literally four years to write it was just that period that it took to get enough reports in to justify writing a book on it you know you don't want to do a book that's like twenty thousand words or whatever so whoops yeah i was uh i was messing people said there was a huge nasty 60 cycle hum coming through at least steve did so i actually had to move a bunch of cables away from the uh screen here Okay, much reduced now. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Not MIB, not MIB interference, is it? No, sorry, no. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, 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 people, <laughs> do people ask you this? I mean, how many shows have you been on? It's like, Nick, have you had any MIB or women in black experiences? I mean, I, I don't know ever hear of you saying anything like that. I certainly have. No, I've had a few weird phone issues and things like that. I mean, some, some really strange ones, but um, I've never had sort of that knock on the door, you know. Yeah. Yeah, like although I, have, I have, although I have crossed paths with quite a few women in black over the years, <laughs> but that's a that's a different type of women in black. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. That's the ones who like to listen to like Ramstein and Susie and the Banshees or whatever. So. Right. But that's all good, you know. That's all yes, good. That, that's the kind we like. Um, I don't, I don't know if I've ever heard about your weird phone stuff. What kind of stuff? I mean, I, I know about the computer thing, but that probably wasn't uh, connected with the um, Roswell slides. But that that wasn't really uh, uh, mysterious. No. That was probably just some asshole. But yeah, well, I mean, uh, one of the things, one of the weirdest things of all, which happened um, actually just about slightly more than a year ago, when I was going to speak at the 2015 uh, Contact in the Desert conference. This was right around the time when I was putting the final touches to my Men in Black book, which my agent, Lisa Hagen, published through her Lisa Hagen Books Company. And um, this, and round about the ladies to the uh, to the book and you know interviewing people and all this sort of stuff, I started to get some really weird and strange stuff going on. Now, the 
when I put the book to bed, so to speak, this was round about the same week, or just the week before, I was due to fly to Joshua Tree to speak at Contact in the Desert. And um, I was speaking about the, the contactee movement and government files on the contactees, like Adamski, uh, Van Tassel, George Hunt Williamson, and British Police Force files on the Ethereum Society, things like this. And one of the things I decided to add to it, because it's a really sort of interesting story, um, is the FBI's file on the Challenger space shuttle explosion in 90, in, excuse me, in 86. Huh. And that actually has a section in that file about a contactee who claimed that, you know, she could channel these aliens and they told her that the shuttle was going to explode. Um, so what I did, I went online and I found, um, you know, like a couple of NASA photographs um, of the shuttle, you know, I was going to incorporate them in the in the lecture, and so I just downloaded, you know, these pictures and added them to the PowerPoint. One was the Challenger taking off, another one was the explosion. Um, added it to the PowerPoint, and this was like a Thursday afternoon. I actually remember because I was due to fly um, on the excuse me, it was Wednesday afternoon because I was due to fly out on the Thursday, and I had to speak to my agent Lisa before I left about for whatever, I don't know. But anyway, um, and bear in mind, I'd sort of put this PowerPoint with the shuttle pictures together round about um, 11 o'clock my time in the morning and Lisa's East Coast, so it would have been 12 her time. And I found her about two in the afternoon and she said, oh, really weird things just happened. I said, well, what was that? She said about two hours ago, which would have been when I was downloading these pictures. She said this weird kind of mechanical voice came on, on the phone and I said, well, what did it say? And he just said, Challenger exploded and put the phone down, which I found that was like really kind of strange, you know what I mean? The, the yeah. timing, the, the subject matter, and it sort of freaked Lisa out and she began to get a lot of weird phone issues going on and um, I got one in the middle of the night, like about 3 a.m. And when I checked caller ID, the call was actually my own phone. Um, that was the number that, that popped up on the screen, you know, when I when I went through the list to see. Um, the know, call is coming from up. inside the house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The call is coming from inside the house. Get but, out. Um, <laughs> but, um, and there have been a few other things like that where, as bizarre as it sounds, when I've done radio shows on the Men in Black in the last year or so versus ones on say the chupacabra or whatever else book i'm promoting um there's been weird stuff with the phone calls on the shows and you know so there's been a lot of strange things and a lot of odd synchronicities for example the day well actually the, almost to the minute when i handed over the i emailed lisa the word document of the men in black book this again was last summer mm -hmm. um i had a bang in my apartment. It's not a particularly big apartment, so, you know, if you hear a noise, you can be in any room and you'll hear it. Um, and I went into the bedroom and what had fallen off the wall and the frame had smashed and the, the glass had broken was a framed letter written by Albert Bender, of all people, the guy behind the Men in Black mystery. Yeah. And it fell off the wall almost, you know, to a T with, uh, with me sending the word documents and so think a lot of weird stuff happened like that which i don't think is anything to do with the nsa or anything like that but it's it, this is more to do with sort of the whole weirder side of the men in black mystery but 
you know, I don't really know what to make of that challenger thing. I mean, that was just sort of just bizarre. You know, was somebody sending me a message or Lisa? I, I don't know, but it was just the timing on everything was just strange about it. Yeah. That was actually a question way down in my um, question uh, bank here that I built up reading the book. And if, um, that was, you know, with regards to men in black, women in black type phenomena, do you think that there is a set of circumstances that causes it to happen or that it causes circumstances? There's something recursive in there, it seems like, going on with weird stuff and men in black, black and women in black uh, visits. Well, you're right, there is. But I mean, I, where he gets confusing is, you know, people say, who are the men in black or the women in black? Yeah. Um, I always say, you know, well, which ones? Huh. Um, you know, there's no doubt that, or in my mind at least, that most of the reports I get, you know, fall into this weirder category, the sort of the John Keel MIB, where mm-hmm. they look weird, you know, they're short, they're pale or olive-faced, um, and they act in a really strange way, and they give off this very creepy, odd vibe, which people very quickly pick up on. You know, they they have odd facial um, traits as well. Now, also, you have examples where we know, I mean, that back in the 50s, George Van Tassel uh, and Damsey were visited by the FBI. Well, back then, you know, FBI guys, they dressed in, like, black suits, skinny tie, and a fedora. That was how all the guys dressed, you know. If you worked in a local store, you'd, you know, you'd walk to town or get the bus and whatever, and that's how you'd be dressed anyway. Yeah. So I think some cases in the early years could have been actually legitimate examples where just purely innocent, you know, where the FBI wanted to interview someone like Adamski, and, you know, they turned up at somebody's doorstep wearing the suit and the fedora, and then years later that person hears about the men in black and what they dress like and what they look like and think... Well, I was visited by the men in black, but they actually were just visited by somebody from the government in the 50s who was dressed in the fashion of the 50s. So, you know, I'm always sort of careful to look at, you know, all the cases from the different perspectives. Um, with that, on, on the trail of the Source of Spies book I did for Patrick, that is solely on the government side of things. That's why I wanted to do the others, to demonstrate that there was this other side. But what I've found is that in most of the cases, the really weird ones, um, the person... It's not actually always in relation to UFOs, as you'll know from the book. Sometimes people who've been dealing with paranormal topics or cryptozoology, they've got visits as well. Right. Um, And so it's almost like as the... um, what was his name? Alexander Leake in the fictional version of the Mothman Prophecies. He says something like, when you look for these things, they know that you're looking for them and then they look at you. It's kind of, it's almost like you, you kick off somebody's paranormal or something's paranormal radar and when you're looking into it, they suddenly realize and think, oh, they're looking at us. It's time we take a look at them. Um, and that I've got so many stories like that and I don't think it's a coincidence that you know, Albert Bender was heavily influenced and interested in, influenced by and heavily interested in the world of the occult, you know, and he wasn't really a dabbler. He was someone who knew his stuff, you know. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because people know that he had, you know, his weird room of stuff and his uh, uh, all the clocks in the room chiming and uh, scary pictures of things. And maybe some people know he had a little sort of like a sac- not a sacrificial, but some sort of a black magic type altar in his uh, room, too. But a lot of people aren't aware of how deep this ran. I, I was actually startled when I read that article when he died. I uh, Somebody dug up that article about him from the 1960s, I think. And he said that he, when he was in the air force, he had to go pick like a, they had, he had to go pick a, 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 a body out of a swamp or a lake or something like that. And he said it gave him a thrill. Yeah. Oh yeah. He was a, he was a strange guy. I mean, that, I actually start with Bender in the book, yeah. not because his MIB experiences, but because roughly 15 years. So this would be about 1930. No, so it was before that, it was about 1933, when Bender would have been about nine or ten. Um, his mother told him a story of how there was a woman in black tradition in the uh, in the Bender family, and she was like a very creepy, almost like the movie, you know, the, the, the woman in black, sort of this creepy, pale-faced woman dressed in sort of a long outfit and like a, like a hat component or a, like a a cowl almost and um she would she broke into the or entered the bedroom of a young boy one of bender's cousins and tried to steal this coin from around his neck and as i point out in the book for some weird reason coins turn up in quite a few men in black cases but she apparently tried to steal this coin and the kid would wake up screaming his parents would come in the room and say you know just a dream this went on for three or four nights over the course of a couple of months and finally, supposedly, the parents saw this woman. She was sort of like, her skin was milk white, you know, and dressed in this uh, gown kind of outfit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I suggest, you know, whether it was, um, you know, a bit of folklore or just a family legend passed down, I don't know. But I don't think it's a coincidence that the man who really gave birth to the Men in Black mystery had a Women in Black story in his family. A lot of people don't, don't know about that at all. But But you're right, I mean... When you talk about that um, story, you know, the, the body giving him a thrill, I mean, yeah, that, that was sort of typical of, of who he was. He, um, you know, he set up this UFO group, the International Flying Saucer Bureau, um, and this, his own newsletter, which actually got a, a huge amount of interest, you know, subscribers. Um, but he, he lived in this house with his father and he lived exclusively in the attic in Bridgeport, Connecticut. He turned the entire place or the entire room into sort of this chamber of horrors and, as you said, with paintings around the wall of demons and there was like seven or eight paintings of uh, large black cats and skeletons. Interestingly enough, there was a painting of a cemetery with a guy in shadow wearing like a fedora and a long black cape. He sort of <laughs> looked like the shadow, you know, the old superhero detective kind of yeah. guy from the 40s. He looked like that. Um, he had a painting like that in his room as well. Um, he had this strange altar. He was heavily into the world of the occult in both fact and fiction. And um, his sort of ideal night was uh, invite friends over and he would... Um, throw like plastic spiders at them or have them hanging from the ceiling and things <laughs> like this you know <laughs> and um so you know he was an unusual i mean he was harmless i think except to himself i think yeah you know regardless of what the world of the paranormal is you know i do think there is sort of a 
paranormal realm. And I think what Bender did, like a lot of people do, he screwed around with all this stuff and it opened a door to something and it came through, maybe in the form of the men in black. Um, you know, I mean, one of the interesting things is that may, there are rumours Bender may actually have been visited by government agents uh, at some point because of his research, because he was, you know, one of the early people in the subject. And we know they're being watched. So I sometimes wonder if he was visited by agents in fedoras and he had such a traumatic effect on him because he was sort of a very insecure person. I do wonder if that imagery of the guys turned up in a black suit then had an effect where whatever this paranormal phenomena was, it sort of manifested in the form of his worst nightmare, you know, black suits and fedoras. Um, you know, the idea that you get what you ask for. Um, I think that could have actually happened. You know, it could have been just down to random situations as to why they manifested as guys in black suits and fedoras versus something else. Right. Yeah, like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, see, yeah. what, while I was reading that, I was reminded of the, you know, the stories of people in the in the crop circles making fake crop circles or hoaxing them and having weird stuff happen to them. You start messing with things and you call up things and create a disturbance in the forest or whatever you want to call it. And it starts, like you said, it starts looking back at you. Well, yeah, I mean, a classic example of that is um, Matthew Williams. You met Matthew, remember, at... at um at Ryan's conference yeah. in 2003. Yeah. Well, Matthew is one of the well, most well-known crop circle makers in the UK. I don't call them fakers or hoaxers. The media does that, and the people who just buy into the ET theory for the crop circles do that because they, you know, you call them hoaxers. It's like a, a slur. Yeah. But Matthew doesn't view himself as a hoaxer. Right. Matthew has made crop circles, and he believes that the act of creating these formations provokes either the phenomena to manifest or he actually feels that in some sense crop circle makers whether knowingly or unknowingly are almost like channel <coughs> excuse me channel to make these formations themselves in other words you know there's some sort of force um suggesting you know the formations to make etc and matthew's had missing time in crop circles he's seen what a lot of people report, these little balls of light flitting over the, the formations, um, weird synchronicities, all sorts of stuff. And, um, you know, when you put all of that together, again, it's sort of like, it is the act of creating a crop circle, you know, does it sort of attract the attention of, quote, something? And then that something has an effect on the formation or it lingers around and that's why we get weird phenomena within the within the creations themselves maybe that's the same with bender you know his his attic um altar so to speak you know it's like it's, the altar would just be something he made kind of like a wager board i don't believe there's anything particularly magical about the board itself mm -hmm. but if the person who's dabbling with the board 100 percent believes by using it they can call something through perhaps the power of the mind brings something through and it's almost like a placebo that the the the, um, the Ouija board or the act of making making the circle. It's kind of like the invite. You know, you invite the thing through, um, but the board itself isn't doing it. It's your mind calling it through, but believing you can do it because you've got the thing that you need, the Ouija board or whatever. Right. 
And I'm dealing with people that can't hear the show because the player isn't working on their platform. Oh, dear. Oh, my. Uh-oh. Yeah. Well, there's also a mobile link that I put at the bottom that people can try, I suppose. Uh, we, You know what? i got to get back to the beginning. And you know, Is there a difference between women in black and men in black? I mean, there, there are some. I mean, there's some in there that sound kind of almost, uh, what's the word, uh, seductive in an evil way, in a way that you, you know, um, where that enters into the, 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 uh, equation more so than just the hypnotic thing that you get from the men in black. No, you're right, actually. I mean, there's, um, there are differences. Um, now the women in black typically, you know, they wear like a black business suit, that kind of thing. Um, there's rarely sort of a hat component, which we do get in like with most of the men in black stories and, we get these sort of shadow people called the hat man. Um, and even the black-eyed children have hoodies, you know. Um, but uh, with the women in black, they rarely are reported wearing hats of any kind. However, as you, you might remember from the book, there are actually quite a few stories where the women in black are described as wearing these long black wigs, which in some cases really stand out as wigs as well, you know. Um so we have that angle, but you're right. There are some cases where the the women in black um, they come across almost like a like you said, like a seductive vampire, if you like. And there are a couple of cases in the book where the men involved did get obsessed. I mean, one of the little known stories a lot of people totally write off as just a hoax um, is the Truman Bathroom story. Um, that story's been told so many times, but why I mentioned it in the book, because a lot of people don't realize that Bender claimed, excuse me, um, Bethlehem claimed yeah. to have seen Aura Rains, this so-called alien, not just um, out in the Nevada and Arizona desert, you know, in relation to this UFO. He said he saw her on a number of occasions dressed in black and black sunglasses and actually with a black, wearing a black beret as well. Yeah. Um, and she came across as very hostile and menacing, not like, you know, that most of the experts he talked about in his book. And what's interesting is that when these encounters occurred, and bear in mind he wrote this in like 54 or whatever it was, yeah. when, uh, when his book, A Border Flying Saucer, came out, he talked about how these meetings, or where he saw her, um, were in diners and restaurants, which... That was something Keel picked up on years late. You know, the men in black would very often hang out in restaurants, as strange as it sounds. Um, and <laughs> yeah. one of and the, this so-called man in black who was with Aura Rains when she was dressed in black had a, a painted-on scar on his face. And that's something else we get. You know, you get these reports of the men in black, like the men wearing makeup and, you know, face paint. Lipstick you know, and so, yeah. Yeah, and, ben, and uh, Bethlehem was talking about this back in 53. So that's why I think there's more to his story than meets the eye. I think a lot of it could be a product of his internal subconscious, subconscious in the same way that Bender's MIB manifested according to his worst nightmare. Well, for Bethlehem, who at the time was on his second marriage, uh, which, yeah. uh, which was failing, yeah. you know, for him, it might have manifested in the form of this gorgeous woman. Um, and I, I also don't think it's a coincidence that, uh, that this demonstrates the obsession he had. You know, his third and final wife was a woman named Alvira Roberts. 
you know, Alvira begins and ends with A, like Aura, yep. and Robert begins with R and ends with S, like Reigns. Um, <laughs> but, but, I mean, you know, when, when you put all that together, I think um, Truman Beckham's experience is like a classic case file of how a fantasy-prone obsession um, can have an effect on people. Now, a psychologist, I'm sure, would approach it purely from a down-to-earth perspective, but I think that because Bethlehem was so, you know, in such a situation where his second marriage was practically over um, and he was after something more, the, the phenomenon kicked in, picked up on him in the form of Aura Reigns. You know, I'm sure whatever it, this phenomenon is, Aura Reigns was not its real form. You know, that was how it manifested for him. Right. Um, but, it, but the fact that she was turned up on a number of occasions, sort of classic woman in black guys, um, kind of demonstrates, you know, that this may have been tied in with like Bender, and then we find that Bender had a women in black story in his family as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm really embarrassed to say this, but uh, were those accounts in the uh, Abort a Flying Saucer? Yes, they were, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm a butthole because I've never read the whole book. Uh. <laughs> okay, well... I mean, the book's worth reading because a lot of people write it off. You know, the idea. Oh no, I don't think you can write any of all of these things off. I mean, there's some of them no. that are are, are uh, quite uh, significant in if you know something about the subject and about uh, some of these other things, and that, and you do that in the book. Well, Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you on that, but I think there are a lot of people in ufology today who I call. You know, the, the, the ones who just want to promote the ETH angle and get on at all the big conferences. A lot of those yeah. deny and, and just won't talk about the contactee stuff because they view it as embarrassing. You know, they view abductions as far more credible, but talking to long-haired space aliens, no, we can't be talking about that because it's going <laughs> to give the subject a, a bad angle, you know. Well, my view is like, fuck that, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah exactly. And, um, yeah, but I think with... Um, Bethlehem's experiences and all these cases, you know, it's unfortunate that people have written them off, but you can find a great deal of pointers that lead us to some of the things that are going on today. You know, as I said, the, the fact that um, Bethlehem talked about this man in black, this, you know, this, not so much a literal man in black that, you know, that Keel and Steiger talked about, but Aura Rain's colleague, if you like, who was dressed in black, you know, I don't think it was just out of the blue that he decided to say, you know, this guy was wearing face paint or makeup. You know, I think there was more to that. Um, you know, the fact that he, even if he made it up, which I don't think he did, he sort of predated Keel on all this by like 14 years, you know, when all the Mothman kicked off in the 60s. Um, so Bender's, I said it again, Bethlehem's story, um, <laughs> It's clearly well worth studying from a psychological perspective, but also from the perspective of an early woman in black case, which has been overlooked because people just don't want to deal with these cases they perceive as being garbage or that the luminaries in today's ufology tell them are garbage. Right. Yeah, it, it, people are locked into... Well, the thing I think they're locked into is this... Um what's the word respectability fetish <laughs> mm. yeah well it's kind of like the thing you know i mentioned before where conference organizers uh, you know you can you put a tie on nick i say no 
No. <laughs> no, I can't put it. Well, I can, but I'm not going to. You know, <laughs> uh, I would have to go out and buy one. But um, but no, because I don't believe. You know, if I come on stage with a Motorhead T-shirt and combat boots, I don't believe that has any bearing on the information. Uh, no. Or if it does, it's because people are prejudiced and pompous and, you know, full of themselves. I believe that the information should speak for itself. And if you want to wear a shirt and red tie and pretend you're running for presidential candidate, that's fine, you know. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to get on stage in a motorbike jacket, that's fine. Um but if the, if the data's strong and you present it coherently and objectively, that should be enough. Uh, but, you know, for some people, unfortunately, it's not. It's become like um, this industry where, you know, there's the certain faces you'll see. I mean, I, you know, I'm a certain face at a certain conference. Yeah. But I don't, you know, I hang out with everybody, have a good time, and it's a good social event, and I'm respectful of people, and I sign books until everybody's got their books signed. The people I'm talking about are the ones who, you know, they take this, well, we can only talk about this because it's going to affect the field or whatever. They're the same ones who say, well, you know, I'll give 30 minutes for autographed and after that, tough luck, you know. <laughs> and they take themselves off with their little cliques to the one table in the restaurant where they can all be together and, um, you know, they're the ones who charge the fees that are just ridiculous fees, you know, and... Um, I don't really have much time for them, and I know you don't. Um, but they're the ones who are to blame, in part, for it's like self-censoring within ufology, self-censoring right. the data because it doesn't fit their little cottage in industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, you and I are both about the outliers. As long as, like you said, they have some uh, uh, something to back them up, something that makes them interesting, something that connects them with other cases. Um, yeah. Because I, I, I think you agree with me. A lot of this, uh, a lot of what's going on here is hiding in the weird parts, or the things that we think are the weird parts, or the people that at the conferences that have the clicks think are the parts that should be ignored. I guess. Well, yeah, yeah and again, it just comes down to you know making sure that um, ufology, as they see it, continues that way. But I mean, for me. If you see anomalies, it doesn't matter if they're absurd anomalies, but they <laughs> crop up time and again. Like this issue of coins. At yes, the Men yeah. in Black. I think there's like five or six I've got in the book yeah. in relation to women in Even black. Even going back to like the 17th century, almost. Uh, well, it was slightly different, but you bring it up as a, yeah. a thematic element. Yeah. Like with alchemy, you know, it's sort of transmutation of metals and then coins being, um, you know, vanishing and things like this. Um for me, it, it is a little pointers like that in obscure stories that I think are far more important than, you know, for abductions, for example. I mean, there are dozens or probably hundreds of stories of somebody said they were abducted, you know, and the aliens pushed this thing up their nostril. We, there's a lot of stories like that. And maybe they, there's so many because that's exactly what they did. But if by looking deeply into the abduction literature, we found that you know, in those experiences, there were 30 people who reported how the particular grey alien had, say, I don't know, like a red wristband. Yeah. That would really stand out. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't be a typical aspect of the phenomenon, like the, like the, nasal, penetra the nasal penetration, you know, or taking blood or sperm or whatever, but it would be a little-known important factor. And I think, you know, I've, I've tended to sort of look out for these 
in the women in black and the men in black cases that it's so odd. You know, I've got a lot of cases where, for example, the men in black and the women in black, when they were in the house, it was almost like they felt driven. They had to steal something from the person. Uh, the most famous case is the one John Keel talked about, how with Mary Hire, the journalist in Point Pleasant, where this creepy man in black stole her pen and ran out the door cackling into the darkness, yeah. you know. <laughs> I've got a lot of cases like that where it's like they have this obsession where they have to steal something, even if it's just like a, you know, a paper towel off the table. They have to leave with something. You know, maybe they have to leave with something before they can leave. I don't know. They're like celebrity stalkers. They want like a piece of your personal whatever. I think they're, they're getting back because uh, uh, didn't... Uh Betty Hill tried to take something from the, the... Oh, no, I think she asked them for something, and they said no. Uh, but there's been a few cases yeah, well, where people have said they've gone on some kind of craft, and they tried to take something, and uh, whatever it was, uh, you know, and he's snatched it back from them and said, no, 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 you're not going to be stealing anything from here. Yeah, actually, what's his name? Antonio Villas-Boas did that as well. And um, But what's interesting, you can go back to sort of stories from the 1500s in England, you know, folkloric tales of fairies, you know, the little people, when people would try and take oh, yeah. something from the fairy kingdom. And sometimes they would, they would manage to do it, but then within minutes of coming back to reality, it would sort of dematerialize or vanish, and yeah. they would never see it again. You know, you can find classic parallels where you go to these altered state realms and you try and bring something back and it's never achieved, or it's always ambiguous, you know. Kind of like um, Joe Simonon with his alien pancakes, you know. And, uh, yeah, there was a pancake, but it was ambiguous because there was actually nothing strange in it, although it was completely lacking in salt. And, yes. of course, in the, old, in the old story, salt is a way to uh, uh, repel fairies. <laughs> yes, and demons, etc., yes. Yeah, I, I think um, uh, Josh Cutchin talked about that a little bit in Trojan Feast as well. Oh, yeah, that's a really good book. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and he's got another one coming out on smells, I think, smells associated with UFOs. Oh, he's, I can see what he's going to be doing. He's going to be doing a series of books like maybe the Men in Black, but in the Men in Black <laughs> 2 will be having you know, a, a, a Trojan Feast, a Trojan Smell. But that'd be cool, you know what I mean? A Trojan <laughs> I mean, I'm not poking fun. It would be cool. Yes, I know. know. To do a series of books. Yeah, a, a Trojan where, Touch. Uh, let's see, what did the what did the uh, ship feel like? Or Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that would be <laughs> a cool series, of, you know, like a trilogy or something. You, yeah. I guess he could do that because I think a lot of people... Um, would find would, or will find that book really interesting, but I think the tragedy is again that mainstream ufology will view it as sort of a quirky anomaly. You know what I mean? It'll, it, the sad news is, you know, they'll flock to a new book on Roswell, but which probably not saying anything new at all. But a book like you know Josh's book, which really deserves major attention, might go under the radar. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I suppose it kind of does. He's being invited to uh, places here and there and even MUFON meetings, which oh, is well, great. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that stuff is slow in coming. And, I, you know, I don't know what you think. Uh, I think I've talked to you about this before, uh, talked with you about it, um, that uh, anything trying to get popular like that is just doomed because it's going to start feeding on itself and then it becomes stale and static and... Uh, is not open to um, what's the word to, to uh, change or or evolution, you know. 
uh, and then that, that's when that's when the idea dies, and that's that's just what the aliens want, or just what the you know I think that's kind of what the the uh, phenomenon feeds on is people being mm. too stuck in something because it'll immediately show you how wrong you are. Yeah, no, you're right, and it, you know we do have that sort of playful aspect, but sometimes it's particularly like the men in black and the women in black. It's like a sinister, yes, playful. Or beyond sinister, you know. I mean, there's no doubt that a lot of these men in black and women in black experiences seem stage-managed by the entities themselves, you know. It's um, it's not just a case of frightening the person to death or whatever, but it's more like a, an elaborate theatre is being played out. I won't say for their benefit, because they don't really benefit from it, but it is for their... You know, there's a purpose involving the person themselves, but it, but it is, it's, you know, it's, you could be watching it on stage. That's how it almost seems to play out, you know, with this character who performs the same act, if you like, over and over again, you know, turning up on the doorstep out of nowhere, having to be invited in. The person feels mm-hmm. weird and as if their mind is being sort of controlled by these things. Then they have to steal something. The person <laughs> sort of starts to feel a bit sick or ill. And then they get up and leave and then they vanish at the front door. And if there's a car, it's always one of these old 50s cars, you know, and the car vanishes. Um, it, it's like it's, it's almost like um, a program playing over and over again rather than legitimate physical visitations. Yeah, a theater. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that you had a whole chapter on just a theater production of something called The Woman in Black. And all the weird things that happen with it. Once again, that theme of if you start messing with uh, some certain patterns, that things may be called up because of that. Uh, what, what happened during that production? I, I, I read that chapter, but all I remember is, I think, ghost things or a couple other things that happened in that theater. Well, yeah. I mean, this was actually, um, one, although, you know, with, with this particular book, I wrote all the chapters, uh, that, apart from two, where a good friend of mine in England, Neil Arnold, um, Neil um, has looked, looked into a lot of um, men in black cases over the years, and um, and women in black cases too, in the uh, English county of Kent, where he lives. And as far as the, you know, as far as the cases are concerned, um, I mean, he's coming up with, you know, some very interesting ones in terms of um, parallels, you know, going back a couple of centuries and through to the present day. Um, however, in saying that, you know, we've got this aspect, as you just mentioned, as when you kind of, um, you know, look into these things, then what you find is that the phenomenon, um, you know, seems to get its grips into you. And Neil talked about, for example, how, you know, we have these cases, where, like, for example, with the theatre uh, production of the women in black, uh, excuse me, the right. woman in black, yeah. and um, and it caused all sorts of weirdness in relation to the production. You know, again, as if some sort of bizarre phenomenon had sort of descended upon it to say, "Hey, you know, we know what you're doing, and um, we're just going to screw with you a little bit." Um, yeah. You know, and when you, and if that was just to sort of, shall we say, you know, occur once. Um, then we could put it just down to random events, you know, just down to coincidence. However, um, when it happens time and time again, um, you know, I, I think we're seeing a pattern division, even if you don't necessarily 
understand, you know, that connection, etc. Um, but, I mean, Neil talked about how a number of the people, uh, this place we call the Fortune Theatre where this happened, huh. a number of the people working on the play actually saw this sort of creepy spectral woman in black roaming around. Um, and again, that cannot be coincidence, but maybe, you know, because of the, the, the theatre production and the original British TV production are really creepy and far better than the the Daniel Radcliffe movie of a couple of years ago. You know, that's sort of more Hollywood thing, but the, yep. the original TV version is really creepy. But I sometimes wonder if, you know, when they were working on that theatre production and he got really creepy, you know, and all shadowy and he gets you sort of excited and, you know, the adrenaline's flowing, then maybe these phenomena, whatever they are, again, like with Bender and with, like, Bethlehem, but... Um, it led the phenomenon to target people in the guise of what was on their mind at the time, the, you know, this sort of spectral woman in black. So, you know, from the days of Bender through Bethlehem, through the 1990s and the 2000s with the woman in black, we're really seeing the same issue taking place. You know, somebody has an experience or they have a, a phobia about something and then the phenomenon presents itself in a way that is that person's worst nightmare. Yeah, and another aspect of it, I I think you mentioned it because I wrote it down here, was that uh, the uh, the effectiveness of the play um, caused, you know, it was, uh, I guess they had people sit, they had plants in the audience, or at least some of the characters would come out of the audience and really startle people. And um, the fact that these strong emotions were mm. being thrown around was another factor too, because as we know that um, a lot of... Uh, strange phenomena seems to hover around uh, areas or, or incidences of high emotion. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, a classic example is something like poltergeist activity. Right. Um, you know, a lot of studies have been done showing that a lot of poltergeist activity occurs particularly in uh, during puberty and particularly more so with young girls. You know, when you're, when you're in puberty, you go through a lot of changes, physical, mental, psychological, everything. Um, so, you know, that makes sense from that perspective, but also, you know, as you said, planting people in the audience, getting them fired up and amped up, etc., um, with this imagery, um, and if you, you know, a lot of people go to, maybe go to see the woman in black, um, have a, already a pre-existing interest in the paranormal, that's why they want to go and see it, you right, know, right. and so that could also sort of lead to you know, this issue of opening a door, whether deliberately or unconsciously, um, you still let it through, you know. Right. <clears throat> uh, actually, Steve wrote in and said something about the... Uh, Steve Ray, our buddy there oh, yeah. in Dallas, he he wrote it, wrote in and said something about everyone notices coins. Maybe that's why poltergeists always put pennies in weird, weird places. It's a lightweight, low-effort object to a port uh, for a nice return on attention. Well, you know, I mean, there could be that angle to it, but I, I think, you know, sometimes it's I mean, I know you talked about the, it as the alchemical angle, but... Yeah, I talk about the alchemical angle and how the men in black and the women in black were the ones that, you know, were either providing the coins or stealing the coins or just showing them to people. I mean, the Herbert Hopkins case of 1976, which some people dispute, mm -hmm. as I point out in the book, um, but again, it has this little-known aspect um, of this man in black 
telling uh, Herbert Hopkins to take this coin out your pocket, and and then the man in black supposedly dematerialised and said, dematerialised the coin and said, you know, I can do the same thing to your heart. Um, and right. one of the other interesting things is that um, Herbert Hopkins is man in black. Hopkins said he was wearing like it looked like red lipstick, and the guy rubbed his finger across his lips and casually but deliberately showed his finger to um, Hopkins and it was red. Now this actually ties in with one of the very earliest alchemy stories where mm. one particular guy delving into alchemy had came across this, you know, this enigmatic substance, the so-called philosopher's stone, which is, you know, at the heart of, of um, alchemy. Right. And he ran his finger on it and it was like this red substance came off on it. So, you know, you've got the coin vanishing, you've got this illusion, if you like, of playing games, you know, making a connection between the Philosopher's Stone in the past and the present, you know, by deliberately running your finger and getting this red stain on it, which Hopkins, his man in black, did, and this, you know, back in the old alchemy stories, that was that's one of the most famous stories. Right. Um, so, again, you know... I don't think, I mean, I can never be sure, but I don't think Hopkins would have gone to such extreme, little-known lengths to insert, you know, these odd aspects, coins, you know, the, the red substance. Um, because he would, even if he hoaxed it, which I don't think he did, but if he did, he would quite rightly know that 99% of everybody in ufology would not make the connection anyway, so why do it? Yeah, why, why uh, bring... That that's another thing that kind of fascinates me is is uh, people saying things that are so outlandishly ridiculous in relationship to whatever was going on. Like I saw a saucer outside. Oh, and then you know my stove turned on by itself, and I heard somebody screaming. You know, down the block three hours later, just things like that 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 seem that are really seemingly very important because they they're things that are out of the ordinary when something really out of the ordinary is happening happening. You know. Like like you've got a uh, whatever a flap area in your in your immediate emotional and uh, uh, psychic uh, area, I suppose. Well, yeah, I mean you're right. I mean you can find such bizarre aspects in certain cases, um, and that's why I think so many of these so-called rogue cases don't get the attention they deserve. Because again, you know, ufology as a sort of a, as a Blind unit, spot. doesn't want to deal with them. Yeah. Um, you know, certain people who just rely on FOIA documentation, freedom of information material, you know, they view that as sort of the crown jewel, so to speak. They don't view, you know, somebody sees a UFO, the men in black turn up, then they get weird poltergeist activity <laughs> in the home. And then, as I point out in several cases, like a gypsy woman turns up on the doorstep and, you know has all these sort of enigmatic statements to make. And um, and then sometimes the people fall sick, you know. they get It's almost like a, like a supernatural hex has been put on them, you know, and they, they fall ill, which happened to Bender. Bender got extremely ill um, psychologically and physically. He had major stomach issues for months after the Men in Black encounters, which mm. may have been, who knows, an ulcer or something just caused by all the trauma. But he also developed... Um, a deep and lasting fear of getting cancer for no reason, you know. Ironically, he only died a couple of months ago at, like, 94, as you yeah, know. of old so, age, you yeah. Of old age, of old age, yeah. So, um, but it does demonstrate that, you know, a lot of weird stuff go on, goes on 
and but so many in ufology don't want that. They just want it. Somebody else's NASA coming down for genetic materials. They've occasionally crashed, and that's it. You know, it's like don't bother me with the with the guy who's had a coin dematerialized out of his hand. <laughs> don't bother me with Truman Bathroom's Captain Aura Reigns because all those cases are lies. You know, that, that's what you're up against, unfortunately. Yeah, but the thing is, you did bring up one of David Jacobs' book, and mm. why did you do that? Which I think is fascinating because I've had issues recently with people saying, why do you listen to that idiot or wh whoever it happens to be? It's like, well, I listen to everything because once in a while something may be interesting. So why did you bring yeah. up um, Jacobs, who a lot of people don't have a, uh, nice things to say about? Well, I mean, this is actually the... I met David Jacobs on several occasions at conferences. Mm -hmm. um, the reason I mention this is because when his new book came out, Walking Among Us, a review copy was sent to him, and I did review it. Right. Um, but the, re the main reason that I focused on it so much was because when I started to read the book, I found something that probably a lot of people hadn't realized because, you know, they weren't digging into the men in black and the women in black stuff as heavily as me. What I found is, and even Jacobs doesn't mention this in the book, so I don't think even he realized it. Right. But in, in his book, he talks about how the so-called human hybrid, alien hybrid um, entities, which he believes have, a, have a, an agenda to sort of infiltrate us, but not from a positive perspective, from a downright malevolence and sinister perspective. That's what, you know, he believes this is a dangerous infiltration. Yeah. Now, whether or not this is all true or not is moot, but one of the, thi well, one of the things, the, the, one of the bigger areas that he talks about in his book is supposedly how these hybrids move among us. And he talked about how they wear, you know, these wraparound sunglasses, hats. The women are sometimes wearing wigs. Um, and they don't seem fully aware of our mannerisms or how to talk to us. Um, they steal things from people's homes. He talks about, he actually talks about that in, in the book, about how they, they sometimes take things from people's homes and also how they don't seem to understand our need for food and drink. They look at knives and forks and plates and different types of food, and they have to be taught how to use them and what different foods are so they can pass among us. Now, you know, I don't need to tell you, but, you know, for the benefit of the audience, there are so many cases of the men in black particularly having a sort of an awkward association with food. You know, the most right. famous one is the, the jello eating yeah. You know, uh, Jello drinking. Like you try to try to drink je a bottle of Jello. Yeah. But there are other cases where, you know, the the witnesses have offered the men in black or the women in black a glass of water or something. They kind of look at it as if, well, what is it? Should I accept it or not? <laughs> they seem to fumble and stumble around food and drink. Um, there's actually a weird story, an afterword, which you probably remember from the Herbert Hopkins story, this little-known story about how um, Im almost immediately after Herbert Hopkins' experience, his son, his son and his daughter-in-law got a visit from a creepy man and woman. Yes. Um, and it was a very sort of sexual experience, a lot of sexual innuendo. Yeah. And, um, and Jacobs talks about that in the book, about how they go out and they, they have to learn our sexual behaviours and sometimes, apparently, it comes across very awkward and forced 
in relation to the people they're speaking to. You know, they, you know, it's kind of like me or you going up to somebody in the street and saying, you know, do you want to have sex with me? <laughs> it's like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and so when I looked at all these different issues, you know, the like the, the camouflage, if you like, with the wigs and the sunglasses, the avoidance or the inability to fully understand food and drink, stealing things from the homes, this sort of sexual angle and everything else, this actually really parallels a lot of men in black and women in black stories. So that's why I mentioned it, not because I was endorsing the alien hybrid, alien human hybrid angle specifically, but demonstrating that Jacobs's hybrids and the people who report the hybrid encounters are talking about something that eerily mirrors the men in black and the women in black's behavior. Right. Yeah, I you know, I thought that was very interesting and that might be a, uh something to keep in mind as uh as people go forward and try to find some more answers. Um I kind of wondered because a lot of these things I was reading in the book um would harken back to fairy folk stories. Uh of uh of fairy folk, to, you know, uh taking people or time being dilated or um, even near the end of the book, you talk about phantom social workers or bogus social workers and they, they wanting to take away children. And I don't think any of them were ever uh, no. successful in doing so, but there are a lot of equivalents to the fairy stories. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, I've got two chapters on the so-called bogus social workers in the book. One deals yeah. with 19th century reports and the other one is 20th and 21st century reports. And, yeah. um, for people who aren't aware, it, it, it's very much, a, not exclusively, but very much a British phenomenon where in the 1980s onwards, this phenomenon of phantom social workers or bogus social workers turned up where women very often dressed in black and sometimes pale and sometimes olive looking would knock on people's doors um, and say there's been complaints about physical abuse of the child or a baby in the family. And of course, you know, the parents are terrified, but yeah. they're in mind in a whirl and they let the person in. And then when the, the woman in black, if you like, the bogus social worker gets in the home, they start asking questions about the child. Uh, but then the, the questions get weirder and, you know, sometimes deal with, have you had any strange phenomena and all this sort of stuff. And then the people, the parents get suspicious and say, let me see that you know, the ID card again, the one that they just flashed for barely a second. <laughs> and then they make their excuses and leave. Um, but these reports, you know, there were dozens and dozens across the UK in the 80s and we still and the early 90s, and we still get the occasional one now. I think I talk about one from 2014 or 13 in the book. Um, but they're very much like the five, 600-year-old stories when the fairies would steal babies and leave behind what was known as a changeling. Um, and the other chapter I have in the book, in the 19th century, in some of those cases, the, um, the women in black were successful. There's some really weird and eerie stories in that chapter about, for example, one involving a midwife, this woman who turned up at somebody's house claiming to be a midwife when the woman was about to give birth and stole the baby. Yeah. And you know, the... The police, I mean, this was a legitimate story, you know, the, I cite the newspaper, the article title, the date, etc. And um, it talks about how, you know, the police, well, what did this woman in black look like? And they said, well, she was dressed in black and she was like <laughs> pale and skinny. 
and she just appeared out of nowhere and stole the baby. And when you look at some of these 19th century reports and compare them to the 20th and 21st century reports, not only do the, the, the women in black sound similar, incredibly it almost sounds like the same women you yeah. know which it wasn't for the fact that it was like a 130 year difference yeah you know you could see it'd be the same band of women going around so yeah. um you know that, that's what those chapters are the ones that sort of creep a lot of people out from, from the feedback i've got at least you know the idea of these strange women trying to steal babies and children you've already gotten feedback what are people saying oh well i mean it's sort of um which I'm sure most authors and you get, one is, you know, giving their opinions and the other one is sharing their own experiences. Right. And um, in terms of... Any good know, ones? The, the, yeah, I mean, well, in terms of the opinions, you know, I haven't actually had, knock on wood, <laughs> any <laughs> bad opinions or bad reviews. Oh, but, I mean, you'll you get know, them. Oh, well, no, I'll get them. I mean, there's never... Which you I've can ignore, yes, for, for the most got. part you know, a, a negative review. But, I mean, that, that's just how it goes. I mean, I don't worry about that kind of stuff. You know, you've got to have thick skin in this subject. And yeah. um, that's how it goes. But in terms of people who provided cases, yeah, I mean, I've got some really interesting ones and weird ones. Um, one where a guy um, had seen, had been visited by these two women in black, and um, and then he would see them occasionally in his bedroom, in his bathroom mirror, as if they were still watching him days later, like a shadowy image of them that could only be seen in the mirror. Mm-hmm. And um, funnily enough, I've got a few stories, and I talk about this in the book as well, uh, where um, people had MIB or WIB experiences in libraries. And since the book came out, I've got several other cases where there was a library component or a bookstore where they turned up right. in bookstores. Um, so, you know, I've got a few like that, and... Um, and there's probably, I've probably got about 12 or 13 new women in black, back, excuse me, new women in black cases since the book came out. Um, so, you know, there's, there's still, I'm sure there's a massive amount of untapped material out there in the same way that, you know, that old adage that most people who see a UFO don't report it. I think that could almost certainly apply to men in black cases as well. Yeah, and women in black, I guess. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, to both of them. Yeah, uh, the the other thing I noticed is that I don't, I can't re- for the life of me remember if there are any fairy folk stories of people in black coming and doing anything. It just happened. The, the fairy folk thing has to do with you know changelings and missing time and things like that, yeah. but not really anything else. People wouldn't say, for instance, like a fairy came and then things started moving around my house. At least no, I don't there remember aren't stories that. like that. But what there are. Um, if we go back to the field of alchemy, mm-hmm. I mean, there are a number of cases where alchemists were visited by these so-called mysterious men dressed in black cloaks. Yes, I was going to ask um, about that. Yeah, yeah, discussing. You know, they weren't sort of threatening the alchemists, but it was more, you know, they were being given advice and information and helpful tips, if you like, almost in the field of alchemy. But right. they would turn up very often late at night under odd circumstances. Excuse me, uh, odd uh, circumstances, and they would sort of appear and vanish enigmatically, like the men in black do, and like the women in black do. Um, so, you know, in that sense, um, it's not a tie-in with um, fairies, but time frame. You know, we are talking about sort of five or six hundred years ago. 
Now, there are a few odd issues, you know, with a lot of these old fairy stories, um, not so much like poltergeist activity or strange things going on in the house, but there are more than a few where, for example, if you crossed the fairies and, you know, they disrespected them, very often they would kill cattle or, you know, the cattle... Um, or, yeah, or other livestock, yeah. Yeah, you know, livestock issues, um, you know, animals, you know, wouldn't give any more milk. The cows mm-hmm. couldn't give milk anymore. So you almost have, not exactly, but it's sort of like a parallel with, you know, the cattle mutilation angle today in relation to UFOs. But it's just sort of upgraded and altered in various ways. But, um, you know, there, there are, well, I mean, Valet pointed this out, you know, to the sort of the perfect degree. But, I mean, there are massive similarities between a lot of these old phenomena versus the the new versions of them if you like you know we've been dancing around this but and you drew a lot of um parallels between or well connections between the mib and women in black and alchemy can you make that more uh specific Uh, well yeah i mean alchemy you know is a very complex subject but in simple terms it's basically the transmutation of metals the idea that you know, going back thousands of years ago, somebody uncovered the secrets of how to sort of manipulate matter and transform um, sort of base metals like lead and tin into precious metals like gold and silver. Now, you know, regardless of the merits or not of alchemy as some sort of lust science or just mythology, you know, in some respects, that's beside the point. But what it comes down to is that, as I said, we've got a number of cases where men dressed in black cloaks um, and very occasionally turned up on a black horse even um, and visited the alchemists. Now, that sort of deals with the, broadly speaking, in, you know, in summarized form in the past. But as I said today, you know, we've got a number of cases where the the men in black and the women in black have this obsession with coins where they try and steal coins. They have the ability to make coins vanish, disappear. In one case, the, the coins sort of glowed and then, then uh, vanished. Um, in other words, they have this connection to, again, you could argue, the transmutation of metal. For example, Albert Bender's woman in black, um, the sto- <coughs> story when he was a kid, the coin was supposedly around this child's neck on a chain. And yet the woman in black was able to remove the coin without taking it off the chain, you know, as if she was able to alter matter and just take it out, you know, without having to take the chain out of the hole. Um, And, of course, as I said, with um, Herbert Hopkins' case in 1976, you know, the man in black ordered him to take the coins out of his pocket, which... You know, how did the man in black even know they were there? And then he made the coin vanish. Um, I talk about a 1950s case where three men in black were seen in the lobby of a government building. And um, oh, yeah. then the witness, the witness then, out of the blue, but I don't think he was out of the blue, found this weird coin on the floor. Um, there's another case I talk about from Canada in the 1970s where a man who'd had abduction experiences was in a store and saw this woman in black, and she threw a handful of coins at him. <laughs> you know, just bizarre stuff like this that I don't believe all these people are making up these weird stories of vanishing coins or, or you know, I mean, if you're going to make a, a story about the women in black, 
I mean, how many people would, would make up a story saying, well, this woman in black just threw a pile of coins <laughs> at me and walked off? You know? Yeah. So it's things like this, and this sort of ties in with this issue of the transformation of metal. You know, the the coins made of silver or made of gold themselves. You know, we're not talking about, you know, coins made of whatever. We, we, we're talking specifically about gold coins, silver coins. And uh, even if it's just down to symbolism in some weird way, yeah. There is this connection with alchemy, and, and Bender himself um, was into alchemy. Right. Uh, Keel actually mentions that in, I, th I think it's the Mothman Prophecies, but um, he had a deep interest in alchemy. So, again, is that coincidence? Probably not. It doesn't tell us too much, but it's sort of one of these jigsaw pieces that we, we're still struggling to put together, but it's, but it's part of the jigsaw somewhere. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a there, there's the aspect of alchemy being a transformation of the soul as well, because it, a part of alchemy is like you're working to you know transmit uh, transmutate lead into gold, but the, there's also the um, element of you're probably not going to do that, but in the midst of the work, you trans uh, transmutate your soul or your personality or whatever you want to call it into a you know from lead into gold as well is, is do you think that has some sort of bearing on what's going on with the uh uh at least it, it maybe it's connection to men in black women in black and maybe the whole subject in general well it could be in the sense that you know you rightly point out it's sort of a you know you have this other angle the more sort of ethereal angle of um uh, again like the like you said the transformation of the soul or, you know, there are claims that it can create immortality, all this kind of stuff. But I think one of the interesting things is that the people who've seen the men in black and the women in black in the same way that alchemy allegedly, you know, creates a significant transformation, well, the people themselves have like a, a profound psychological transformation. Right. I mean, Albert Bender, you know, it, it ruined his life. Huh. Really, yeah. To the point where he left the subject and then stayed away from it after he finally got out of it in the sixties when he, you know, wrote his book Flying Saucers and the Three Men. Um, Herbert Hopkins reportedly, you know, was highly traumatized and burned a bunch of his files. Um, you know, and, and when you look at that, we do find again whether it's sort of symbolic or not. You know, the visits, whether visits, I mean, is symbolic or not, but it does revo uh, result in like a a transformation of the person. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know that because sometimes I get accounts where the witness had an MIB experience or a WIB experience thirty or forty years ago, and they're still worried to this day about, well, should I say anything or not? Yeah. You know, it has that transformative effect on their, on their, you know, their, their state of mind. Right. Yeah. I, I, one of those experiences, it's, uh, it ch uh, often changes people for life. Um, which, mm. which is why I had that whole thing about artwork and how it affects people and how UFO, well, a UFO yeah. sighting is like the best piece of artwork you'd ever seen because it changes your life yeah. in about five seconds. Well, it's like, you know, somebody who has, I don't know, somebody who has panic attacks. Yeah. You know, if that, somebody has a panic attack out of the blue for whatever reason, if they don't get to grips with it, it'll take over their life. You know, they leave right. the house and they start to hyperventilate for no reason other than that they're worried that something's going to happen mm -hmm. because it happened once before when they left the house, you know. And that's when people really get into a, you know, I'm not criti critical of them. It's, it's a shame, you know, it's a tragedy. But when it happens... I think probably a lot of people find that 
difficult to cope with you but you you know you need whether you need help or you get out of it yourself you know it's um it must be a traumatic experience and i think that's the same with what happened to bender um instead of thinking well this is interesting or i'll just get out of it or whatever he panicked and it had a very adverse psychological effect on him to the point where he did take over his life and he could not do anything other than either focus on this or get out of it and he realized that for his sanity hmm. it had to be the latter you know he it was kind of like it's almost like an alcoholic you know who hopes they can get by by just having one drink but they know if they start they won't stop right and i think that was kind of a thing with bender he, he realized he couldn't just investigate this stuff to a small degree it took over his life which actually talks about which actually coincides with an article i wrote for mysterious universe a couple of days ago about the dangers of becoming obsessed by ufology to where it oh, yeah. becomes your only outlet on on life you know that's no more healthy than it is you know knocking back a bottle of vodka a day you know um or spending all your money on I don't know, comic books at the expense of keeping money by to pay the rent at the end of the month. Yeah, it, It's like that. It's And, you know, it, it's not specifically related to ufology. It's when people become obsessed by something yeah. that it causes a problem in their lives. And But that's, you know, any obsessions like that, really. Yeah, it's uh, it, you, and you can tell when that's happening because uh, well, I, I've had friends that have become obsessed with certain things, and every time I don't talk to them anymore because that's all they'll talk about. Yeah, and it's kind of it's kind of frightening almost. Well, it is, but the, you know, problem is that for the person, it be, that's where it gets a bit scary because to them it's totally normal. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. Why aren't you, you paying know, attention I mean, to me? This is very important. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not being critical of people who are fascinated by this or fascinated by that. I, I understand but what you're saying. I do have an issue when, you know, I can hang out with someone for four hours, you know, in the bar after a conference or something, and there's nothing to talk about other than UFOs. I mean, it's like when we meet up, you know, it's music or, you know, it's just whatever's been going on. It's just yeah. general chat. Yes. And, of course, UFOs or whatever is going to be part of it. Right. But it's not like a forced conversation where you're unable to talk about anything else. Right. But I think that when, you know, it's like with you, you're big into baseball, you know, and um, weekends you're off flying your, your plane over the California desert. You know, I like to go out on weekends and have a good time. Yeah. Um, music's one of my big things, you know, and um, and I think for it's soccer and... And for that reason, I think it's healthy to just be a normal person who happens to have an interest in UFOs. When your every kind of move is dictated by the phenomenon, um, then, you know, you can be in real danger of allowing all this stuff to sort of take over your entire life. You know, the idea that... Um, I mean, I mentioned, for example, that weird experience with the phone call you know the space shuttle and also the albert bender picture falling off the wall mm -hmm. that was genuinely weird mm -hmm. but i mean i just i just view it well yeah that was strange but it's not gonna you know i'm not gonna sit at home on a friday night pondering on why <laughs> the picture fell off the wall 
that is when you know you can think about it and talk about a radio show. But when you when you get to that position of you know sitting around and looking at paintings on the wall, is another one going to fall off? You know that that's like the road to fucking madness. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. the The, the funny thing is, it seems like you're, you know sort of getting back to Bender, exactly getting back to Bender. It's like he did his own banishing and said, "Okay, that's it. I'm either going to go crazy or I'm just going to stop this." And he, yeah, he kind of cured sense, himself. Actually, no, and he actually did a good job of it. You know, I mean, he did something a lot of people in ufology don't do. I mean, he got out of the subject in like '53. Said, "I'm done." He yeah. only really came back because Gray Barker badgered him <laughs> to write <laughs> yeah. his own book, yeah. "Flying Source in the Three Men." which he did, and then he gave a couple of lectures in the 60s, and that was it. He was gone. You know, it yeah. wasn't like um, your favorite band, you know, so we do in our farewell tour, and then they come back again a couple of years later. Yeah. Bender was gone. Um, and I think it worked for him. Um, and I don't think it was coincidence that when he got out of the subject, you know, this was when um, he met a girl who uh, he married, you know, and they had a happy life. Yeah. And, and he had a life away from all this and you know most of us can have a life within this and a life outside of it you know as i said with you with your act you're flying and your baseball and everything else you do um and so in that but for bender it was kind of that angle of he's either got to be in it full-blown you know 24 7 or i've got to leave it alone like i said you know um somebody who has that obsessive kind of streak through them um, ufology is probably not a good thing for them. Um, but, you know, that, that, that's one of the hazards. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, he came out of it all right. But he realized, you know, like an alcoholic, he could never go back to it. Yeah. You know, because disaster would happen again. Yeah, he went into Saucers Anonymous or something. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, and he, you know, he went um, heavily into the uh, music of Max Steiner and set up... Um, you know, an appreciation society, yeah. and and by all accounts, you know, had a happy, healthy family life, you know, and lived to a good, ripe old age. Yes, um, and we never went and bothered I, him for some reason. No, we didn't go and bother him, <laughs> but um, <laughs> been the, the best thing to do for me is to stay. I, I think know, so. Yeah. I was trying to be nice to him. It's probably why I didn't bother him. <laughs> but um, but again, I think. You know, it, it's just a matter of having balance in your life. And if you don't have balance, whatever this phenomena is, it it makes it easier for it to get it its grips into you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this article I wrote the other day, uh, so several people criticized it because I talked about this young kid I met at a conference, and he was having all these weird 11-11 experiences, you know, oh, the 11-11 yeah, yeah. phenomenon. Yeah. And, and he said, well, you know, it's like, particularly at night, like, uh, you know, he's in his apartment looking at the clock, and, and like a Friday night, and he said, I'm looking at the clock, and 11.11 comes around, and suddenly a weird, weird thought will come into my mind or whatever, or something will happen. And he was, and he was like, really stressed out. And I said, so what can I do? And I said, well, one of the things you could do is instead of obsessing over it at 11.11 on a Friday night, you're like <laughs> 21 hit the town and get laid, you know, and yeah. drink some beer. <laughs> yeah. And so don't be looking at the clock all alone in your little apartment yes. on a Friday night. Right. And some people said, you know, that you're being an asshole saying that, you know. This what? Young lad. Yeah, they were saying, you need, you're an asshole, you need um, 
to refer you should have referred him to like a counselor and i said well no i said he asked my opinion he didn't ask the opinion of a mental health expert yeah, or you my opinion would be it's not or my viewpoint would be to hear somebody saying in their early 20s on saying oh, i'm sitting at home on a friday night staring at the clock <laughs> frightened for 11 11 to come round. well that's not a healthy situation to be in when i said you know get out get drunk get laid you know, have a good time. I meant it from the perspective that you're not going to be sitting at home obsessing over 11-11. Yes. And the less you obsess over it, the less it's going to be on your mind. Yeah, and that the was, same way that was free. Somebody... If, you take his, if he takes your advice, that was free. <laughs> he doesn't have yeah, to exactly. go to a mental health professional. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like going back to people who have panic attacks. You know, they get outside if they've got... Um, which is the one, if you don't like outside, is that agoraphobia? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If, if you're agoraphobic, you know, and and somebody goes outside and they start to get dizzy and you know start to faint or whatever, for no other reason than they're just outside. Well, if you can calm down and talk to them and tell them a joke and get them get it off their mind, you yeah. know, that's the first step to helping them. Yeah. Um, and I think, and that's what I meant with this guy. I wasn't being disrespectful, saying you know, just get out. I, I meant it from the perspective if it's not on your mind your mind's on something else and hopefully it's on some something positive like that hot woman in, you just saw in the bar you know yes of course yeah a a normal thing that you can uh, that you can uh, basically have your life revolve around instead of the weird stuff that will uh, drive you crazy if you keep just doing this self-referential yeah. uh obsession with it and yeah, yeah I've, and I've seen that and it's happened to me too so you know well, I think, you know, the thing is, is to is to recognize it. I mean, you know, it's like you're in secret having a, you know, a good social life and you've got your own interest, you know, and you've got her, your work, you know, she's got her job and everything else. That makes for a healthy situation. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, peer, peering through the curtains at midnight, <laughs> wondering if the men in black are roaming around just because you happen to write an article about the men in black is not a good mindset to get into. That's funny. That reminds me. Uh, when I interviewed Dean Radin, like in '95 or four or whatever it was, he said right in the middle of the the uh, conversation, he said, "Have you ever had a Men in Black type experience?" I said, "No," and he goes, "Oh, you probably will." And I never did. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. Well, I, I mean, have. who knows? Maybe you will. But yeah. I mean, maybe those weird phone calls I got in the middle of the night, the weird synchronicity with the shuttle. The bender thing falling off the wall. Maybe that was an example of the men in black phenomenon getting its grips into me. Yeah, or trying but, to. Or trying to. And maybe they did get their grips into me. Maybe they still do. Yeah. But if that is the case, <laughs> yes, I'll write about it, you know, during the working day. But as I point out in that article, you know, when the working day's over, I like to stop and I like to take evenings off and weekends. I don't sit around, you know, on a Saturday afternoon pondering about why that picture fell off the wall. If I did, I would be in big danger, I think. Um, I'm more interested, you know, what am I going to do on a Saturday afternoon, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. You go to a local pub with a bunch of friends and watch one of the one of the UK theme pubs, you know, we go out and yeah. um, watch one of the English soccer games, you know, on the sort of 10-foot square TV set. Yeah. Um, so... I, I don't, you know, I don't see anything wrong with investigating men in black, women in black, anything. But it, you know, have a balance. Have a balance. Don't get to where 
becomes your everything. Yeah. Yes. If Nick wa- if Nick was obsessed, do you think he could write so many books? <laughs> I think the only thing you're obsessed by is is producing material, which is great. Well, you know, I mean, I enjoy what I do. Um, well, then, yeah, it's not an obsession. It's kind of like that. That's the thing you do. It's like a musician is obsessed. But if he's a good, he or she's a good musician, that's not obsession anymore. That's just honing your craft. Yeah, I mean, I think you know. I mean, I wouldn't say someone who plays in a band is obsessed. I think they just have a big passion for what they do, and right. they've turned their hobby into a career. That's kind of like me. You know, I've been lucky enough to where if you suck at it, it's an obsession. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I took and it's something that interested and fascinated me from childhood to where I began sort of doing freelance writing. Now, despite what some have said, as you know, I don't earn my living from writing paranormal books. Right. But I do earn my living from working as a writer. But, you know, I do a lot of other stuff outside of ufology. You know, I write for Penthouse quite regularly. I used to write for Steve's DFW Nights. Mm-hmm. Um, ghostwriting for other people but you know uh, although it's still a passion i like to keep it structured where you know i do eight to five and then i stop unless you know like tonight i'm doing a radio show to promote a book which is fine yeah. but you know for the most part i work eight to five monday to friday and that's it i don't do evenings don't do weekends um but i still retain that passion as long as i've got that i'll keep doing it you know i won't be one of these like the equivalent of a band that just goes through the motions and they're absolutely bored stiff on stage and they all hate each other, you know. There's just no point. You might as well just, you know, do something else. So if I ever got to that stage, I would do something else. Um, You know, I've had loads of jobs over the years and some I've liked more than others and some less than others. That's like everybody. However, you know, for me, I don't feel there's an obsession there because... It's an interest, um, and I have lots of interests. I guess ufology and cryptozoology are the ones I'm most known for, rather than you know being known for the fact that you know I like punk music and whatever. You know? Right. Uh, to get back to the book a bit, uh, <laughs> one of the, <laughs> but you know what? Of course, we're going to talk about anything. That's fine. Um, cause I, I've, I, I, I've gotten through about half the questions, um, and we don't have to get through all of them, obviously. Uh, one of the more fascinating, um, well, out of many in the book was the, the, uh, story about the air marshal Horsley, I think was his name. Oh yeah. Sir Peter Horsley. Yeah. And his, uh, his visit with a, with a man who's possibly from another planet. I, uh, uh, go ahead and talk Mr. about James. it. I had a, so I had a weird comment on it that I'll I'll uh, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll inject after you've uh, uh, described what happened because it's a great story and kind of weirdly oh, weird I don't know whether story. to believe it or not and I love it. Well, the, the story was told by a guy named Air Marshal Sir Beresford Peter Torrington Horsley. You can tell it's an English name. You know? Yeah, exactly. And uh, he was like a very high-ranking member of the British military from the 1950s onwards. Um, you know, I mean, he, he wasn't just someone, um, you know, who has achieved sort of a, you know, regular position um, in the military. I mean, for example, his last position, which was from 73 to 75, he was the, the Royal Air Forces, which is the equivalent of the US, US Air Force. He was the Royal Air Force's 
Deputy Commander-in-Chief of Strike Command, mm -hmm. which basically meant that in the event of a nuclear attack, he was one of the people who would have the who had permission, you know, and, and clearance to essentially press the red button. Yeah. I mean, that's how high he got. He, Sir Peter Horsley was a major figure. Kind of imagine, you know, if a UFO story told by Colin Powell when he right. was in government. It, it, it literally was sort of that sort of position of expertise and prestige. And it's a very but, strange story. Oh, it is. Well, basically what happened, Sir Peter Horsley... Um, he did some work, for example, for um, Prince Philip, the the, uh, the Queen's husband. And Prince Philip has had a long-standing interest in UFOs. He actually subscribed for years, I think he probably still does if it's around, to Flying Saucer Review magazine. Yeah. And um, Horsley did some work for him and got, got put in touch with uh, people from the British military and um, the US military. And also this woman who... He described, so Peter Horsley wrote a book and talked about his experience in his book in, I think, 1999 when it came out. And he said he met this woman he described as um, the enigmatic Mrs. Markham. And um, apparently this Mrs. Markham put him in touch with a man named Mr. Janus, who turned up um, at this particular place where a meeting had been arranged. Mr. Janus was kind of like um, Valiant Thor in the... Um, in the Frank Strange's uh, Stranger at the Pentagon story. Mm -hmm. And kind of in the same way that Frank Strange's had this, you know, uh, communication with Valiant Thor, um, so Sir Peter Horsley met Mr. Janus, who, you know, told him the typical contactee stuff about um, disarming our weapons and we need to live in peace and harmony, etc., etc. And Sir Peter Horsley said, again, like a lot of the contactees, that Mr. Janus looked human. But there was just something about him that kind of had this little bit of an ethereal, odd atmosphere coming from him, like a strange vibe. Um, but the most interesting aspect of the story is the, the fact that the, the sort of the chain of command, if you like, from Sir Peter Horsley try, reaching Mr. Janus, it went through um, a contact in the British military who knew somebody in the US military who could put him in touch with this Mrs. Markham, who in turn could put him in touch with Mr. Janus. Uh, but Mrs. Markham was described as this very odd woman who was uh, very sort of beautiful, hot-looking, uh, kind of like, um, bear in mind, the night, you know, the, for the time frame of the 50s, kind of like um, Vampira is <laughs> probably the best way I can describe her. Yeah. And, um, and she apparently turned up and arranged this meeting and sat in on the meeting with Mr. Janus in total silence. But then he reportedly had one other meeting... Um, with um, Mrs. Markham, and you know, basically the whole thing came out. You know, this extraterrestrial presence, and we're here to help, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But he got a very awkward vibe from her, despite the fact that you know she looked beautiful. Um, but what was particularly notable about this story was that um, you know the, the person who was telling the story, Sir Peter Horsley. You know, he, he talked about this this strange woman. Mr. Janus, this human-looking alien, and it kind of sounds like, you know, the the, the typical Truman Bethlehem, Van Tassel Adamski type story, except mm -hmm. for the fact that this was, you know, a high-ranking member of the British military. <laughs> but one of the things I talk about is that the time frame ties in when this little-known movie came out in England called Devil Girl from Mars, which is a really, <laughs> it's it's 
incredibly entertaining, but it's incredibly bad as well. And um, well, if you ever they get go, they see, go hand in watch. hand, Nick. Yeah, you should see it. It's, I mean, it's like a very. Um, it, it actually was a stage play previously, and you can huh. when you watch the movie, you understand why because yeah. it's all pretty much set in one room in a pub in in in, in Scotland, and there's this. Um, this woman who comes across very much like Mrs. Markham, she's dressed totally in black, pale face, unemotional, and she's actually here to um, use the human race for, to help uh, her, her race to survive, the Martian race. And um, so, you know, you've always got like an early abduction type situation. Mars needs men. Stories. Yeah, exactly, Mars <laughs> needs men, that's what it was. Instead and, of Mars um, needs women, yeah. Yeah, but... Um, you know, it's interesting that um, the time frame is similar, and there was apparently quite a deep investigation of Sir Peter Horsley's uh, experiences at the time, as I talk about in the book. And um, it's sort of one of the more bizarre ones, but also... I think they were investigating his sanity behind its back. Well, they were. You know, one of the interesting things I looked at was, could it have been like a KGB oh, yeah. psychological operation to yeah. try and get you know, nuclear secrets out of him, which, which is actually a really interesting theory. Um, but even if that was the case, then you've got the issue of the KGB picking up on the women in black issue specifically to chill him to the bone, I guess, you know. So whatever the answer is, it's still a fascinating aspect of ufology. Yeah. I, I, I like the, uh, the, the specifically British quote that's, very, that's kind of creepy. Uh, what did he say? General Martin appeared to greatly fear Mrs. Markham, something which he said was provoked by her, quote, not quite looking properly human, <laughs> unquote. Yeah, but, yeah, you can tell that's an English word, they're properly, you know. It's <laughs> <was> properly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like everybody in English is actually as well. Well, actually. Yes. <laughs> I do that all the time. Yes. But, um, and they but say prop, beta. You know, proper is sort of a word, I guess, that you hear more in England than uh, you do over here. But, yeah, she... I mean, again, it was interesting that it, there was never sort of a real description of what that meant. But again, you know, you get that with the men in black. It's sort of people look at them and there's just something about them that they can't put the finger on, but something's not right. And yeah. I think that that's what he meant. You know, there was just something about Mrs. Markham that, you know, it was <laughs> almost it like that fatal attraction thing, you know. I really shouldn't get involved, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about, uh, discussing, whatever, writing about uh, a lot of things that John Keel came up with around the Mothman time. It's very strange. I, I read through about half the book. I'm getting through about half the book at that point. I was like, what's going on in the late 60s? Why is all this mm. stuff happening from like 67 to like 71 or so? It seemed like there was a flap of MIB women in black stuff going on in that period. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, Keel was in touch with a number of um, women. Um, one, this um, radio host, Jay P. Paro. Yeah. And, um, and Jay Paro was um, a woman who worked in the radio industry in New York in the 60s. And she had a number of experiences that Keel talked about. And actually, in a couple of cases, Keel presented her cases under a fictionalized identity of a person who didn't really exist, but it was basically to protect her. Um, but these these experiences she had, one, interestingly enough, uh, was in a library um, where she went in the library and she got this message to meet somebody in the library, uh, funnily enough, a woman in black, 
she got to the library and then suddenly the library was completely empty other than this creepy dressed in black librarian um, who left this sort of enigmatic note for her. It actually sounds almost identical. I don't think you know the story of Peter Rojevitz in um, 1980. Yes, um, that's a, in the book too. You know, the, yeah, a 14 researcher and uh, he had this experience in a library uh, when he was doing research into UFOs and suddenly the library went quiet, he looked up and there was nobody there other than this weird-looking old man in black. Um, but, yeah, to sort of get back to your point, that was one of the 1960s women experiences. Keel uncovered a number of these so-called mysterious gypsy encounters that occurred with women who, you know, looked and dressed like gypsies but turned up at people's homes immediately after they had UFO experiences. Right. Um, and Keel also spent a lot of time looking into a case that I expanded on quite extensively in the book, a woman named Shirley Cromarty, who worked for the Nixon administration. Oh, and, yeah, I wanted to bring uh, that up. Yeah, and she um, was uh, basically accosted by a woman in black um, who essentially sort of placed her into an altered state of mind and took her to a store to steal a bunch of clothes, which, you know, is just bizarre. Yeah, it sounds but, like a um, low-level control of Candy Jones. Yeah, exactly. And this woman was described as wearing a dark, very black, when I say very black, that sounds odd, but I mean blacker than black wig. Um, she was pale, and she specifically asked Cromarty what time it was. And that's something the men in black often ask, you know, what's the time? They just, out of the blue, they ask that question. Yeah. Um, and, you know, her story comes across like a, almost like David Jacobs hybrids. That's how she sounds. And I talk about how, you know, different um, psychedelics and, you know, mind control drugs were used, um, including this one called The Devil's Breath, which I talk about in the book and how that may, have be may well have been what was used on Shirley Cromarty. And um, he actually went to court because, you know, she'd stole the clothes, but the... When the story was told and, you know, who she was became public, um, the case was thrown out because it was so bizarre. And they realized that whatever had happened, you know, Shirley Cromedy wasn't a thief or, a, you know, um, just stealing clothes or whatever, that something, somebody had done something to her. And, the, you know, the case was brought to a hasty end. Um, so, you know, we've got quite a few cases like that in the 60s, you know, in, in connection with these women in black in libraries um, turning up and, you know, manipulating the mind of Shirley Cromarty, J.P. Paro's experience in the library, the gypsies, you know, they, all of this occurred roughly from about 66, 67 through to 71. And, of course, perhaps one of the weirdest um when Keel was doing his research in Point Pleasant into Mothman, yeah. he would get these calls from, you know, people saying, well, why haven't you got back to me? And he's like, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, we spoke to your secretary. And he said, well, I don't have a secretary. And he said, well, yes, you do. You know, this woman's been on the phone wanting to get information on my experience so she can pass it on to you. And Keel had to tell them all that I don't have a secretary, you know. And um, so that was like sort of another weird woman who inserted herself into this story. Yeah, it, it was a very strange period. The, the other thing I'm thinking as I'm reading your stuff about Keel is how much of Keel's stories do you take as 
fact and how much do you take as him taking liberties? Well, I mean, that's a good question because it's, it's that sort of... Because definitely weird things happen to him, but other things people have said, yeah. well, that's not exactly what happened. What Keel said was this, and yeah. this actually happened. Well, what I think is that it's almost the same question that can be applied to Gray Barker. And what's interesting is that Barker and Keel actually covered a number of um, identical cases and events and, and near identical ones. I mean, for example, they both wrote a book on Mothman. Keel did the Mothman prophecies and Barker did the Silver Bridge. Um, they both wrote extensively about the men in black. And, and they also wrote about strange creatures like the Flatwoods monster and stuff like that. Um, and the other thing that they both had in common, aside from, you know, predominantly the men in black connection and Mothman, yeah. Yeah is that they were both very skilled writers. And they, I think they were noted not just for the factual data they got across, but they were also noted for being able to tell a really good story. Right. And there's no doubt that if you look at Barker particularly, before I just get to Keel, there's no if you look at Barker, you know, he was someone who would turn a bright sunny day into the proverbial dark and stormy night, yeah, not exactly. maliciously or deliberately, yeah, but because it makes the, the story, story read yeah. even better. You uh, know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, I think the same thing happened, happened with Keel, that I don't believe Keel lied. What I think is that Keel presented the facts, but he did so sometimes in probably the closest 14 thing you can think of to like a Gonzo novel, <laughs> you know, yeah. where you take real events, real people, um, but then you sort of gonzo it to where you tell a great story and you change identities and you add effect to one particular story because it's going to be more entertaining. But you're not doing it to deceive people maliciously. You're doing it because you have a, a type of writing that unless people recognize it for what it is, they take a black and white approach of, well, that guy was full of crap. You know, Barker was full of crap. He lied. Right. Rather than he, he told a story or a parable, and he did it in that fashion because it would keep people captivated and they would read the whole thing, and he would still get his message across. And I think yeah. that was kind of like with Keel. There was nothing malicious about it. He recognized that to tell a story, it's got to be a good story, and that at times he may have turned a good story into a really great story, but... The important thing is that the person got the message, but maybe they wouldn't have got the message if his book was sort of a just sterile, right. black and white approach, you know. Yeah, why are we making connections with these things that shouldn't be made? It's like, well, some of these connections can be made, and the only way I can do that is to tell a story in the way that it works as a story. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of, I wonder if anybody ever asked him about that. Well, you know, he would have said, no, everything in there is absolutely true, and I don't know why you're asking me that. I'm sure that's what he would have said. Well, he probably would have done because, it, you know, it would have raised questions from, you know, from that other perspective. However, you know, I mean, if you write a book and you name everybody and other people can track them down, you know, yeah. I think that that makes it easier on the person. You know, clearly they're telling the truth because other people can interview the person. But, yeah, I think sometimes with Keel, where he didn't use names or, you know, he prov uh, provided a, a false identity, I think it just came down to... You know, he was, he didn't want to reveal the name, or well, their person didn't want their name revealed. Or even possibly because there was this rivalry between him 
and Mosley and uh, Jim Mosley and um, Barker. Right. He may just not wanted Barker and Mosley to get hold of his witnesses and beat him to the finishing line. Right. You know, <laughs> get the story out. I actually think that could be a significant part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've sort of had that in the back of my mind, but I never really, you know, kind of articulated it in the way you did. But that's very interesting that there was because you could, you know, they. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the uh, the hate or whatever you want to call it, a lot of the uh, dislike came from Keel's side because Mosley and Barker thought it was a big joke, but uh, still they were they did serious things to try and mess with him. That, that you know, and he, they well, they yeah. admitted to it. I mean, the big the closest comparison I can think of in recent years because this was all back in the sixties. Right. In recent years, would be the sort of the the numerous books that have come out on Roswell. You know, particularly, I'm sure you remember when Randall and Schmidt first came out, there was this big uproar where, you know, Bill, particularly Bill Moore, was, you know, angry about um, how much information. Do you remember that when he was talking about how much information had been used from his books and all that kind of stuff? And um, then you had other people writing Roswell books and saying, well, you know, well, this came from my book, even though my book's not referenced in the bibliography or whatever. Yes. it's kind of a similar thing. People view a case as theirs. Now, if somebody's written a definitive book on a particular subject, then I have no issue with saying this guy's the expert or that woman's the expert on this. Right. You know, because if they've written the definitive book, that makes sense. But, you know, it, it should still allow for other people to look at it for themselves nothing wrong with that mm-hmm. but i think with keel and barker you know there was this such antagonism that and i'm sure when of course you know they were both writing or researching mothman particularly um there was this concern that because they were both writers and they were authors of books it would have obviously gone through their mind well either want to get mine out first or please don't let him have more information than i have you <laughs> yeah. know? It, was like, yeah. it was like that Here's a weird question I have in here, which was like one little story in your book. Whale mutilation? <laughs> 1997 <laughs> in England? <laughs> yeah, well, this, this involves a friend of mine who his pictures in the book, uh, Nigel Wright. Nigel's yeah. been a, a long-term paranormal researcher in the UK, and he's written a number of books and you know, done a lot of investigations. And um, he, funnily enough, got a visit, or actually I should say his wife got this weird visit from a woman in white um, the very night when he was in a local library, again, a library, investigating UFO reports and actually stumbled across a man in black case from the uh, early part of the 20th century in England. Um, And while he was at the library, uh, you know, he came across this case and he was going to a UFO meeting that night, actually run by John Downs, Nigel and John. um, Nigel and John wrote a book together called The Rising of the Moon, a UFO book. And um, Nigel, I interviewed Nigel for the book, and uh, he told me how, in this entire period, there was like it was all it was like with Point Pleasant in the sixties. There was a wave of weird stuff going on in this particular part of the southwest in which John and Nigel live. Well, Nigel lives in the north of England now, but he, he, they lived in the same area at the time. And Nigel came across reports of um, UFOs, paranormal activity, witch covens. Um, occult stuff going on, and also the weird discovery at a place called Otter Cove of this mutilated whale, um, which had like a circular, if I remember correctly, like a circular part taken out of it. It didn't look like a, a bite or anything like that. And 
right above the cliffs where the body of the whale was found, somebody saw this weird, large, black cat-like animal but th that was glowing. And then it all culminated with Nigel's wife getting a knock on the door of the night of John's meeting. And this woman was dressed totally in white with a he white headscarf and huge black sunglasses. So you could barely see anything other than her nose and her lips. And she basically told Nigel's wife, tell him to leave this subject alone or else. And kind of like with the men in black, she marched down the drive and literally vanished. Nigel's wife apparently went after her, got to the end of the road, looked left and right. There was no one there. So, um, you know, the, the, but the whale components, you know, it was, was part of the story. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it just it ended up on the beach after there was a strange sighting there and a couple people had seen strange things. And um, the, I think, wasn't yeah, it was the next day the whale was up on the beach? And there was nothing wrong with it, apparently, except it had its, like, like its genital area cored out very neatly, just like uh, cattle mutilation. Yeah, it was like this circular incision. Uh, it didn't look like a random bite. But what had happened the night before, um, somebody had seen, like, this glowing light coming out of the water, in, you know, in the sea. And uh, they said then there was this strange glowing animal, and then you've got this weird creature, um, however you want to describe it, strange animal, weird creature glowing on the top of the cliffs. Yeah. And then, you know, it culminates in a woman in white. You know, there's several, I've got several cases of women in white in the book, not just sort of women in black. So, you know, that, that was sort of a, a very strange one, but it was sort of typical of these waves that we get and flaps where it's not just UFOs, it's sort of across-the-board paranormal stuff happens. Right. I got a final one here. We've got, I don't know, what, uh, seven, eight minutes. Um, mm -hmm. With all the warnings that are thrown at people and, you know, you should cease this or not do this or, you know, whatever, all the warnings from women in black or men in black, have they ever carried them out? Has anybody, because you, you said that one researcher, I can't remember his name, he... Oh, oh, the guy that was researching uh, King Arthur's uh, grave site, possibly. He was told to stop, I think, twice, and he didn't. Well, he didn't. I mean, I mean, he died in, I think it was 2010. But, I mean, he got this threat in 2001 or 2000. So I don't necessarily, you know, tie that in because I think there's a danger, you know, you can put too many threads together when it's not necessary. Yeah. But it, as far as the question's concerned... Most of the time, you know, the threat works really well because it's a very ominous and weird threat. It's not necessarily a direct threat. It's often sort of couched in terms of where the person thinks, hang on, they're threatening me, but what, what are they threatening me with? So they're puzzled as well. They're frightened. And, of course, the man in black or the woman in black looks weird. So typically, the threat itself really works now occasionally but not always sometimes just a threat you know don't talk about it yeah. sometimes though there is like an inference that you'll die you know like herbert hopkins right basically the, the man in black said you know i can dematerialize your heart in the same way i can this coin right um there are a number of cases like that but personally i'm not aware of any where somebody said if you don't stop this you will die and they did die uh, i don't know of any like that it's just it's as if the threat it's plenty enough, you know. Yeah, either that or they did die and you never heard about it because they never told the story. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a good point. I never thought about that. <laughs> but, yeah, but again, you know, I think there's also this danger of watching the ufologist. You know, it's kind of like somebody in ufology dies and, well, it's got to be sinister. I mean, I remember that 
when Mac died, when Mac Tonis died, several people said to me, you know, well, what did he die from? You know, this is weird, this is strange. I said, well, no, Mac had a, unfortunately had a heart condition and he died at 30, whatever it was, yeah. uh, 34, I think. Um, right. And it sometimes happens, you know, a footballer will drop down dead on the pitch at 26. That happens. Right. But, and I think there's this danger sometimes that because if you're in ufology and somebody dies, it has to be for sinister reasons. Well, no, it happens because they're human and we're all on a time limit. You know, Albert Bender, who was threatened to death by the men in black, lived to 94. <laughs> so that demonstrates, you know, <laughs> that being visited by the men in black doesn't mean you're going to die. But there might be somebody in ufology who does drop down dead at 38, you know. Yeah. But, but it's, you know, I put that down to the old phrase, shit happens, you know. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't necessarily mean it happens because of something paranormal. Maybe it does sometimes, but maybe it's just because you're a human. And the fact that you're a UFO researcher is secondary, you know. Yeah. So, Nick, uh, what's the, what's the next one, which I'm sure is finished by now? <laughs> Book. Well, the next one I've got coming out... Um, is in September. It's called Nessie. It's all about the Loch Ness Monster. Ah. But, you know, I don't... Like I said, I always try and come up with a new angle. And, you know, I've been dozens, well, hundreds of books written on Loch Ness. So it's like, well, what else can you do with it? Uh, But this book looks at all the paranormal stuff surrounding Loch Ness and the paranormal stuff surrounding the Loch Ness Monster. So there's chapters... There's two chapters on Alistair Crowley because he had a home at Loch Ness, Beleskin House. Right. So that deals with all the weird stuff surrounding him and how people who were linked to the Loch Ness Monster story also became linked to Beleskin House. Um, It's got stuff about sightings of UFO encounters in and around Loch Ness, above Loch Ness. Um, Also, how some of these sightings of the Loch Ness Monster, the creatures have reported like shape-shifted. You know, they've appeared in different guises, if you like, for different people. And there's also the, the old... Uh, comparison with UFO reports where people have tried to photograph the Loch Ness Monster and the camera's jammed or the pictures have come out fogged. Um, I talk a lot about how some of the primary researchers of the Loch Ness Monster mystery had a lot of weird synchronicities when they were at Loch Ness. Hmm. Uh, one of them being Ted Holliday, who wrote The Dragon oh, yeah. and the Disc, yeah. The Goblin Universe, which are really good books. Yeah. Even Tim Dinsdale, who was largely a down-to-earth flesh-and-blood researcher so to speak of Nessie even he talked about weird and odd experiences that seem to have paranormal overtones so in other words the it's a full-length historical study of Nessie from the earliest reports which is like 1500 years ago right to the present but demonstrating stuff that most people in the field don't talk about which is the weird stuff you know it's, it's kind of you see it mirroring mirrored with ufology where most of ufology wants to talk about nuts and bolts UFOs. And there's just a few of us who take the alternative approach. It's the same with the Loch Ness research community. Most people want to talk about giant eels or plesiosaurs, mm-hmm. you know, or unknown animals. They don't want to hear about cameras jamming and somebody seeing a man in black on the shores of Loch Ness, as Ted Holliday did. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't want to hear about, you know, the possible tie-in with Alistair Crowley and um, occult mm-hmm. rituals. Right. But it's part of the story. If you're going to ignore it, you're ignoring a significant percentage of the Nessie saga. All right. 
Well, uh, Nick continues to uh, break down barriers where he sees people are not paying attention, which is exactly why I have him on the show and we're buddies. And I look, I look to him as an inspiration, etc. Nick, thanks well, so thanks, much. Rick. Yeah, thanks so much for being on the show. Is there is there a specific song you would like me to play at the end here, which I'll do? You won't be able to hear it though. Damn it! Oh, um, yeah, you, you were talking I, I about know, Motor, got... Motorhead the other day about Lemmy, but whatever you want. Um, no, I know, and a good, a good, good, creepy one, Pet Cemetery. Ah, uh, by the Ramones. Yeah, yeah, I think it's. There's, a, there's another thing, you know. They got Pet Cemetery. Did, did you know the story about the, the video to Pet Cemetery, all the weird stuff that happened? When no, no, whoops, the there it is. <laughs> oh, oh well, what happened was that when they all the electrical equipment kept blowing out because huh. um, they filmed it in a real cemetery. <laughs> and of course, you know they all died young. And the video—if you watch the video—they're all lowered into a real grave. Right, right. Uh, in this particular cemetery, it's not a set. You know, they actually did dig, got permission to sort of dig there, and <laughs> all the, the bands all lowered down into the grave. You know, and so they'd all this weird stuff going on, and then they all get sick and die. You know, in the late forties. Yeah. Okay, Nick, thanks so much. We'll play Pet Cemetery. Sorry you can't hear it, but uh, I'll let you go off and drink, you know, some tea so you can get ready for your next uh, interview tonight. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I've got to start another one in like 10 minutes till, mi- uh, okay. till midnight my time. So. Oh, my God. Okay, well, thanks Nick. again, Greg. Thank you. All right. Talk See to you, you soon. All right. Thanks, mate. Bye. Bye. And here's Pet Cemetery by the Ramones. Thank you so much, Nick.